Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. You may be surprised to hear me this week, as I said in the last podcast that I was planning on recording every other week. If you recall, I started this podcast for my Sunday school class. Well, the Ward Council decided last week to have Brother Pete, my cohort as Sunday school teacher, switch off weeks. Some people who are close to me and not in my ward didn't like the idea of me skipping weeks. And though it was a nice thought not to have to spend so much time recording and editing the podcast every week, I still want to cover the whole Book of Mormon for my own personal historical record. And doing this once a week in smaller segments seems better than doing it two weeks at a time in bigger segments. Plus, my mom, who wants me to continue to do this each week, offered to be my editor slash producer so I won't have to spend so much time editing. So if you're on my ward, you'll get two episodes emailed to you every other week. If you want to keep up on the podcast each week, go to one of the previous links and look for our previous recording. And with that, let's jump into Mosiah chapter 29 and then further through Alma chapter 4. In chapter 29, Mosiah is getting older and he's ready to end his reign. He's ready to give up his kingdom. But the problem is that his sons are gone on missions and his oldest son, Aaron, who is the birthright to the kingdom, refuses to be king. In fact, they all refuse to be king. And Mosiah, being wise, fears that if anyone, if he appoints anyone else to be a king or be a steward of the kingship, that it might lead to contention and destruction later. And he gives a very good lesson about the dangers of having a bad king. Now, he knows what it's like to have a good king. His father was a good king. He was a good king. His grandfather was a good king. You also have to remember that he sees what happened when King Benjamin was king over the people in the land of their first inheritance in the land of Nephi. And he goes over that in verses 21 through 23, the dangers and problems of having a wicked king. And this is what he says in verse 21. He says, And behold, now I say unto you, you cannot dethrone an iniquitous king, save it be through much contention and the shedding of much blood. So a bad king is going to establish themselves and not do what the will of the people is unless they fight him and reinforce that by the sword. It says in verse 22, For behold, he has his friends in iniquity, and he keepeth his guards about him, and he teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him, and he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God. So if you look at that, the first thing he does is he establishes cronies. He sets himself up and surrounds himself with people who are going to support him and make sure that he can still do what he wants to do. And he writes his own laws. He creates own laws to tear down the laws that have already been there, placed in there by a righteous king. And also he tears down the laws of God. Verse 23, he says, And he enacteth laws, and sendeth them forth among his people, yea, laws after the manner of his own wickedness. And whosoever doth not obey his laws, he causeth to be destroyed. And whosoever doth rebel against him, he will send his armies against them to war. And if he can, he will destroy them. And thus an unrighteous king doth pervert the ways of all righteousness. So there again, he creates laws. And anyone who doesn't want to follow his laws the way he wants them followed, he's going to destroy So rather than having to deal with the potential of an iniquitous king or a king that's going to lead the people to destruction, Mosiah wisely decides to create a system of judges that are appointed by the voice of the people. In verse 25, it says, Therefore, choose you by the voice of this people, judges, that ye may be judged according to the laws which have been given you by our fathers, which are correct and which were given them by the hand of the Lord. So he establishes a set of laws that have already been established. And then he creates judges to judge the people. That is done by the voice of the people. 
which is great because in verse 26 he says, Now it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right, but it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore, this shall ye observe and make it your law to do your business by the voice of the people. So here again, we're looking at majority rule. The people pick the judges and the judges judge according to the commandments and the laws that were established that are already righteous. Now, what happens when the voice of the people are choosing wickedness? This is what he talks about in verse 27. It says, And if the time comes that the voice of the people doth choose iniquity, then is the time that the judgments of God will come upon you. Yea, then is the time he will visit you with great destruction, even as he has hitherto visited this land. So the check mark there is that if the people are choosing wickedness and they're putting in unrighteous judges, then the land is ripe for destruction. Now, we're supposed to take the Book of Mormon and apply it to us in our lives and use it as a type and a shadow. So if we're doing that, and he's talking about this, what's happening to us today? When wicked people are ruling over us, when we have wicked people as our leaders, and the people start to choose wickedness and to start putting wicked leaders in place, we're becoming ripe for destruction. Are we seeing that today? Absolutely. Many, many unrighteous leaders throughout this world who are elected by people who think that they're doing good and who have actually switched good for evil and evil for good and are voting in these people to promote a value system that is contrary to the will of God. And that's where it gets scary. Now, what happens in, in areas where the people are still righteous, but the judges go rogue? This is what he says in verse 28. He says, And now if ye have judges, and they do not judge you according to the law which has been given, ye can cause that they may be judged of higher judges. So there's the check and balance system there, too. If you have lower judges that are not judging right, they can be judged by higher judges and, and go on up from there. And on the contrary, if you have higher judges that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they can be judged by a panel of lower judges. So it's a brilliant system that Mosiah puts in place, very similar to the checks and balance systems that we have here in the United States. Now, this system puts more responsibility upon the people as a whole to choose righteousness. But that's what we want. We want that type of equality. In fact, in 32, Mosiah talks about the inequality of having such high leaders as kings. He says, and now I desire that this inequality should be no more in this land, especially among this my people. But I desire that the land be a land of liberty and every man enjoy his rights and privileges alike. So long as the Lord sees fit that we may live and inherit the land, yea, even as long as any of our posterity remains upon the face of the land. And it all goes back to that to equality, to liberty, to privileges. Now, many will ask, what is equality and what, how does it play into this? And really, equality is opportunity. The opportunity to live free, the opportunity to have liberty and to enjoy your rights and your privileges. That's what equality is. And that gets destroyed and hampered when you have iniquitous leaders, when you have leaders who want to take that power unto themselves and want to control the people. And that happens when the majority of the people start to choose unrighteousness. And here's what's happening in our world today. Just as Isaiah prophesied, many will call good evil and evil good. And one of those words that keeps getting thrown around a lot today is the word tolerance. President Packer had a great quote about this word. He says, the virtue of tolerance has been distorted and elevated to a position of such prominence as to be thought equal to and even valued more than morality. It is one thing to be tolerant, even forgiving of individual conduct. It is quite another to collectively legislate 
and legalize to protect immoral conduct that can weaken, even destroy the family. There is a dangerous trap when tolerance is exaggerated to protect the rights of those whose conduct endangers the family and injures the rights of the more part of the people. We are getting dangerously close to the condition described by the prophet Mosiah. Now, he's not talking about being intolerant, that we should be intolerant of other people. He's not saying that tolerance is bad. He's saying that when we make tolerance more important than keeping the commandments of God, then we're ripe for destruction. And I see that happening in today. In fact, one of the, the great lies that Satan uses to manipulate people is that you can't, this is what he says, that you cannot love a sinner unless you love his sin as well. We need to be cautious about that. And this is what Mosiah was cautioning about too. So as we move along here, and we, we look about the equality of the people and the equality of leaders and rights and liberties, he establishes these judges. And in fact, this is such an important time in Nephite history that they start reckoning their time according to this now. They were before reckoning it according to the time that Lehi left Jerusalem, and now they start reckoning their time according to when the, the judges were established. And they go on, and Alma the Younger is appointed as chief judge. Now, he's also serving as high priest, and Mosiah passes away, so he the kingdom ends when Mosiah passes away, and he's 63 years old. And also Alma, the, the senior, passes away. We jump right into the book of Alma. Now, poor Alma the Younger, in Alma chapter 1, it says in his first year, he comes across a man by the name of Nehor. Nehor is a wicked man. It starts off by talking what kind of man he is. First of all, it says he's a short, large man, and he's noted for his much strength. And in verse 3 of Alma chapter 1, he says, And he had gone about among the people, preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church. And I find that very interesting, that he's claiming to preach the word of God, but he's going against the church. And he's declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular and they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. So he's teaching priestcraft. It says he also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men. And in the end, all men should have eternal life. So he's preaching to them some truths. All men are saved. However, he's not requiring anything of them. So he's asking them to support him so that he's popular, to take care of him. And in exchange, they're going to be saved. He's, he's flattering them with these words. And it even says in verse 5, And it came to pass that he did teach these things so much that many did believe on his words, even so many that they began to support him and give him money. Like I said, he's, he's bringing in priestcraft. And what is priestcraft? In 2 Nephi chapter 26, verses 29 through 30, Nephi gives a great definition of priestcraft. And this is what he says. He commanded that there shall be no priestcrafts, for behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and, and praise of the world. But they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing, wherefore the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love. So priestcraft is really setting yourself up as a light. Now, Christ told us to be a light unto the world, that we may glorify our Father in heaven. Priestcraft, it's for your own gain and for your own praise of the world and not for the welfare of Zion like Christ would have us do. Elder Oaks gives a similar definition by this quote. He says, a gospel teacher will never obscure students' view of the master 
by standing in the way or by shadowing the lesson with self-promotion or self-interest. This means that a gospel teacher must never indulge in priestcrafts, which are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world. A gospel teacher does not preach to become popular or for the sake of riches and honor. He or she follows the marvelous Book of Mormon example in which the preacher was no better than the hearer. Neither was the teacher any better than the learner. Both will always look to the master. And that is the key right there, is to keep the light focused on the light, on the master, on the Savior, and to glorify him. Well, Nehor was not doing this. In fact, he was doing just the opposite. He was preaching that he should be popular and that the people should take care of him because he is who he is and because he's teaching them such good things like they're all going to be saved. As Nehor is preaching, he's confronted by a man named Gideon. If you remember, Gideon is the same Gideon who chased down King Noah and was about to kill him when the Lamanites were attacking. And so Gideon spares his life. Also the same Gideon who becomes a confidant of King Limhi and also helps Limhi and his people escape from the clutches of the, the Lamanites when they were in bondage to the Lamanites. So this is a man who's well-respected and well-loved. And it says in the end of verse 7, that this man, Gideon, withstood him, admonishing him with the words of God. So Gideon knew the scriptures, he knew the teachings of the prophets, and he withstands him. And verse 9 says, Now because Gideon withstood him with the word of God, he was wroth with Gideon, and he drew his sword and began to smite him. Now Gideon, being stricken with many years, therefore he was not able to withstand his blows, therefore he was slain by the sword. And I think this is a warning sign for those who preach false doctrine, that they will use force and ad hominem attacks, and they will talk louder and more aggressively to get their point across, as opposed to just preaching and teaching simple truths. So here we have Nehor trying to enforce his preaching and his teachings by the sword, and he kills the aging Gideon. Now, I think if Gideon were younger, he probably could have taken him in a fight. But it does say that Nehor was a pretty big man and that he was really strong, so who knows. But anyway, Gideon passes away and they take Nehor and he is tried for murder. And he's made to confess by Alma that he was teaching priestcraft, that he was teaching falsehoods. And then he dies an ignominious death. The problem is that his teachings, his priestcrafts, live on. And the people start going down in the pride cycle, right? Their pride is high and they're headed towards destruction. And so many people like this idea of the priestcraft that they start to persecute the members of the church. And even though laws are in place, there's still a fair amount of persecution going on. And the pride cycle continues. They're not taking care of the poor. They're becoming rich. They're becoming very prosperous, but they're ripening for destruction. And this leads to the prominence of a man named Amlicai in chapter 2. And Amlicai says he follows after the order of Nehor. So he believes in priestcraft. He decides that he wants to become king. And there's a group of people that want him to be their king. Of course, he's going to establish them as his cronies. He's going to enact these laws. He's going to do all these things that King Mosiah was concerned about, which is why he set up the reign of the judges in the first place. In fact, it says in verse 4, Therefore, if it were possible that Amlicai should gain the voice of the people, he being a wicked man, would deprive them of their rights and privileges of the church, for it was his intent to destroy the church of God. And there's a great division among the people, and there's a lot of contention. And they decide to leave it to a vote. And they assemble themselves together and they cast their votes. And the majority of the people decide that Amlicai should not be their king. 
And of course, this makes Amlicai and his followers mad. So they decide that they're just going to be a separate people and that he's going to be their king anyway, and that they're going to wage war against those who did not vote for Amlicai to be their king. And they go to war. And Alma and his people, being strengthened by the hand of the Lord, begin to slay the Amlicites with a great slaughter. And the Amlicites begin to flee, and the Nephites pursue and continue the slaying of the Amlicites. And they chase him into the valley of Gideon, and there it becomes nightfall, and the Amlicites flee, and Alma and his people set up their tents for the night. Well, the next morning, the spies come back and say the Amlicites are on the move, and they've joined up with a big band of Lamanites who have come to destroy the land of Zarahemla. And Alma rallies his troops, and they go and meet the Lamanites and the Amlicites just as they were crossing the river Sidon. And it says that the Lamanites and the Amlicites, being as numerous almost as it were the sands of the sea, came upon them to destroy them. And this is verse 28. It says, Nevertheless, the Nephites, being strengthened by the hand of the Lord, having prayed mightily to him that he would deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, Therefore the Lord did hear their cries and did strengthen them, and the Lamanites and the Amlicites did fall before them. And there are many examples in the scriptures of the Lord bolstering his people in a fight, and this is one of them. And then we get into this classic battle of Alma fighting Amlicite. This is verses 29 through 32. He fights with Amlicite sword to sword, and he slays Amlicite. It's like one of those classic epic stories. And then he goes on and he fights the king of the Lamanites, who is smart enough at least to flee from Alma, who's so righteous and powerful that he flees and goes on to fight another day. And they drive the Lamanites and the Amlicites away across the riverside and into the wilderness, where it says there's ravenous beasts and many of them die from their wounds and they're devoured by wild beasts. And there's prosperity and peace for a number of years. This brings about the humility that creates the new pride cycle. They're now humble and they begin to repent of their sins and they begin to look to the Lord for strength and for help. But it's interesting in chapter 3 of Alma, it talks about how the Amlicites had distinguished themselves. This is verse 4 from the Nephites, for they had marked themselves with red in their foreheads after the manner of the Lamanites. Nevertheless, they had not shorn their heads like unto the Lamanites. So essentially what they've done is they have marked themselves as being different from the Nephites or being different from the people of God. And it goes back to an earlier discussion back in in Nephi about the Lamanites being cursed. And the curse, and this is what I want to emphasize here, the curse was not the mark. Neither was the mark the curse. The curse is always a separation from the presence of the Lord or a separation from the Spirit. That is the curse. Now, at various points in history, there is a mark associated with a curse to distinguish these people as being cursed. That doesn't always mean that people who have this mark are cursed, however. And we can get ourselves into trouble when we start talking about the curse being the mark or the mark being the curse. And chapter 3 does a good job of describing why the mark is placed upon them to help keep them separated from the righteous so that there's not an intermixing and mingling of unrighteousness and righteousness, which will ultimately prove the destruction of the righteous. So read through that carefully and, and make sure you understand the difference between the curse and the mark. Then we get to the end of chapter 3, and there's this great couple of verses that talk about reaping what we sow. In verse 26, it says, And in one year there were thousands and tens of thousands of souls sent to the eternal world that they might reap their rewards according to their works. 
whether they were good or whether they were bad, to reap eternal happiness or eternal misery according to the spirit which they listed to obey, whether it be a good spirit or a bad one. For every man receiveth wages of him whom he listeth to obey, and this is according to the words of the spirit of prophecy. Therefore, let it be according to the truth. And thus ended the fifth year of the reign of the judges. So as we see here, the people are being humbled. They're humbling themselves. And in chapter 4, it talks about how pride is starting to go down. They're humbling themselves because of their losses. The church is starting to be successful. And in fact, it says that in verses 4 through 5, that 3,500 people were baptized. And this is in the seventh year. So Alma's been in the judgeship for seven years now. So this is two years after the pride cycle was so high that they were had to be humbled. And then three years later, just three years later in verse six, the prosperity starts to kick up the pride once again. It says, It came to pass in the eighth year of the reign of the judges that the people of the church began to wax proud because of their exceeding riches and their fine silks and their fine twine linen and because of their many flocks and herds and their gold and their silver and all manner of precious things which they had obtained by their industry. And in all these things were they lifted up in the pride of their eyes, for they began to wear very costly apparel. So again, they humble themselves and the Lord starts to bless them. And when he starts to bless them, then they start to become proud. And when they become proud, there becomes contention and strife. In fact, in verse 9, it says, And thus in the eighth year of the reign of the judges, there began to be great contentions among the people of the church. Yea, there were envyings and strifes and malice and persecutions and pride even to exceed the pride of those who did not belong to the church of God. And then we get into a situation that gets really ugly because members of the church were starting to climb that pride cycle. They were becoming proud. Verse 10, it says, And thus ended the eighth year of the reign of the judges, and the wickedness of the church was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to the church. And thus the church began to fall in its progress. And we need to be very careful about that as members of the church to not be stumbling blocks, to maintain righteousness. Now, we know as members of the church that there are good people in the church and there are some not so good people in the church. And there are righteous Sunday school teachers and unrighteous Sunday school teachers as well as there are righteous bishops and unrighteous bishops. It happens. These are men. These are people. They make poor decisions sometimes. We've got to be very careful about becoming stumbling blocks. And I was talking to a patient the other day, and she was telling me how her family was all members of the church, and they were not righteous, clearly, and that her side, that side of the family that were not members of the church were not righteous at all, and there was a lot of judgments, and they were doing things that were not in keeping with the teachings of the church, but she associated them with the church, even though they were doing things that were, had nothing to do with the church and that the church did not teach. And I can tell it, it's created a stumbling block for her, even though she doesn't perceive me as being an unrighteous member of the church, or even that she doesn't know good members of the church. She still sees the church as an organization that she can't belong to because of the hypocrisy of her family. And I don't think that that's an uncommon story. And I don't think it's right for them to judge all the church based upon the actions of a few of its members, but that's the reality. So that's what we have to do is we have to really safeguard against being poor examples to the world. We have to set ourselves as being lights to the Savior that we can glorify our Father in heaven like we talked about earlier. One of the biggest things that we can do to help combat pride and the pride cycle is to humble ourselves and to take care of the poor. It talks a lot about in chapter 4 
about the humble followers of Christ taking care of the poor and the needy and doing what they have to do to retain remission of their sins and that they have joy in the resurrection and their deliverance from Jesus Christ. But this inequality drives a huge wedge between the righteous members of the church and the unrighteous members of the church. And Alma sees this and decides that it's time for him to give up the chief judgeship and to do more as the high priest. So he gives up being chief judge and he appoints Nephi Ha, who was also a high priest, uh, to be the chief judge. And he goes out amongst the people, and which begins a series of lectures from Alma that are so good. And I'm looking forward to covering those next week. But I want to cover just in this last closing bit what he talks about in verse 19, what he decides to do. And he says, And this he did, that he himself might go forth among his people or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them, to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, and that he might pull down by the word of God all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions which were among his people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. I want to emphasize that word, pure testimony. How blessed we are to have testimonies of the Savior. And I think that that's one of the tools that we need to use more often, that instead of trying to preach and teach, that if we just remember to bear pure testimony, knowing what we know, that we can influence others greatly. Listen to this quote by Elder Ballard. It says, My experience throughout the church leads me to worry that too many of our members' testimonies linger on, I am thankful and I love, and too few are able to say with humble but sincere clarity, I know. As a result, our meetings sometimes lack the testimony-rich spiritual underpinnings that stir the soul and have meaningful, positive impact on the lives of those who hear them. Our testimony meetings need to be more centered on the Savior, the doctrines of the gospel, the blessings of the restoration, and the teachings of the scriptures. We need to replace stories, travelogues, and lectures with pure testimonies. To bear testimony is to bear witness by the power of the Holy Ghost, to make a solemn declaration of truth based on personal knowledge or belief. Clear declaration of truth makes a difference in people's lives. That is what changes hearts. That is what the Holy Ghost can confirm in the hearts of the children of men. Brothers and sisters, I want to bear my testimony that I know that Christ is our Savior and He leads and guides His church through prophets and apostles today who speak His word and that if we follow their example and their teachings, they will lead us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will be saved at the last day. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at Dr. Jared Thomas. That's D-R-J-A-R-E-D-T-H-O-M-A-S at gmail.com. Thanks and have a blessed day.